Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Australia is waking up. What you consume, how you get from A to B, where you choose to shop. These everyday choices matter and who you bank with does too. Shape the world you want to see. Join the bank with clean money. Search Bank Australia. Hey, I'm Nathan, and this is the Dumbo Feather Podcast, where we get to know extraordinary people around the world who are charting a hopeful future. One of the things I love about this work is being introduced to new models of success, which we can implement in our communities and nations to ensure more prosperity across the board for people and planet, not just the top 1%. A trailblazer in this work is Kate Rayworth, an economist for the University of Oxford who devised the donut economic model, which defines the social and environmental boundaries we must live in in order to thrive. If you haven't come across this work already, I suggest you press pause now and familiarise yourself with the donut. There's plenty about it online. And then dive into this scintillating chat with Kate, which was recorded mid-2020 as part of our Small Giants Academy Next Economy series. The conversation was facilitated by our publisher, Barry Lieberman. We're calling it the next economy, but what is the next economy or the donut economy to you? And how are we going to get there? So we need to reimagine the pictures of the economy in our minds. As an economic student in the early 1990s, the pictures that were put in my head were very much, I now can see, were the old economy. And they're still being taught today. And even if you've never studied economics, we pick them up by osmosis through listening to the radio, the news, reading the newspapers, listening to politicians, listening to business leaders, because we continually reproduce the narratives of the old economy. And we need to make that visible to ourselves so that we can let go of it. And we need to make the pictures explicit to ourselves so that we can redraw them. So I find it easiest to think about the next economy in contrast to the last one. It's that pivot between where we've come from and where we want to go to. And just to start with the big picture, I always think it's, you know, start with the biggest picture. Mainstream economics says, welcome to economics, here's supply and demand. It starts with the micro picture on day one and sticks the market in front of our faces and puts price at the center of our vision. And that is just not the smart way to go. So we need to pull right back. 20th century economics also, having started with market, tells us that this is the shape of progress, right? Endless economic growth. And in a crisis, we hear it more, right? Because our economies have suddenly taken a real shock and hit. So it's almost re-legitimized that we need to grow. We need to get GDP going again. But this curve goes right up off the screen, right? It goes to the ceiling because no matter how rich a country already is, every policymaker will tell you that the success of their country lies in yet more growth. 
And so we've got this extraordinary situation that you're sitting there in Australia. There are people I've seen from the Netherlands, from London. Many people on this call are from the world's richest countries, which are now richer than any countries have ever been before them. And yet we believe, even prior to a pandemic, we believe that the solution to our problems lies in yet more growth. And so there's something absurd about that. There's something insane about that. But that model of endless growth is deep narrative in 20th century economics. And I think it actually goes back to a very deep narrative of who we are. Any parent knows that what you love to see is your child learning to crawl forward and stand up. It's that motion of forwards and upwards that we've taken to see as progress. That's only one small phase of life. Children grow and then they grow up. Otherwise, they literally couldn't sit at the table. Their feet would grow for bigger forever. They would be too big to fit in our homes. And this is nature's curve. Nature's curve is to grow and to grow up. And we need to enable our economies to do that. And for me, the starting point of that is to just start with a much, much bigger picture of what the goal is. If we have no explicit goal, we end up chasing growth. We need to start with a goal. And so that's the donut. So it's a compass for 21st century prosperity. And imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of that picture. So that means the hole in the middle is a place where people are falling short on the essentials of life, where people don't have the food and water and healthcare and housing and gender equality and political voice and income. Every person has a claim to, and I can say that because I crowdsourced those 12 dimensions from the world's governments. So all the governments in the world, through the Sustainable Development Goals, have agreed that every person in the world has a claim to meet these essential needs. Leave nobody falling short in the whole, get everyone over the social foundation into the green ring of the donut itself. And you could say that was a 20th century project. 20th century, it seemed pretty good that you could pursue income growth, you could pursue GDP growth, because this would create jobs. And when people get jobs, they earn incomes, and then we can invest and provide for all these wants and needs. So 20th century focus seemed to be doing pretty well that way. But we now know more. We pull back and we see the ecological ceiling. And we now know that if we use Earth's resources to such an extent in such a way that we push beyond that ecological ceiling, we cause the breakdown of Earth's life-giving systems. So we cause climate breakdown and we acidify the oceans and create ecological collapse and a hole in the ozone layer. And these nine around the outside are the latest in Earth system science. They are from the scientists who drew up the planetary boundaries concept just 11 years ago. That's, to me, what's extraordinary about this. And it's only 11 years that humanity has had this sense that there are a critical set of life-supporting systems that keep planet Earth in a stable state, in a state that is conducive to life. And in fact, she's been in this balanced state for the last 11,000 years, in which all of human civilizations have arisen and thrived. So we need to do a double whammy. We need to meet the needs of all, leave nobody falling short, but without overshooting those planetary boundaries, stay within the ecological ceiling. And right there, the shape of progress changes. Suddenly the shape of progress is not an endless line of growth. It's, it's balanced. This begins to echo what indigenous cultures have known for millennia, that well-being lies in dynamic balance. So think of the Taoist yin-yang, think of the Buddhist endless knot, think of uh, the Celtic double spiral, the Maori takarangi. These shapes are circular and dynamic. And that tells us suddenly that the Western concept of progress lying in endless growth is the weird outlier and that we need to escape from that endless escalator because it's taking us to ecological destruction. So we need to renew our deepest sense of what well-being is and we profoundly know it in our own bodies 
even young children at school about age 10, they are taught that every human body has a digestive system and a muscular system and a skeletal system and a respiratory system. And that these can't be put under so much pressure, starved of food or water or our body temperatures raised too high or too low, that if you do that, you tip us out of balance and we go from life to death. You go from health to ill health. And so we understand that bodily well-being lies in balance. And to me, the greatest metaphorical opportunity we have, because we live by our metaphors, is to say, just as we know bodily health lies in balance, so does planetary health. And just as a child should be taught at school about the digestive system, the respiratory system, they too should learn about earth systems, this carbon system, the carbon cycle and the water cycle and soil creation, so that they understand personal health and planetary health. And then we've got the beginnings of a completely different dynamic, this sense of thriving in balance. I haven't even talked about economics yet. Economics means the art of household management. How absurd to assume that you're going to manage your household if you don't even understand it. So let's start by understanding the planetary household and what enables her and the rest of nature to thrive. And let's understand humanity and what drives us and that we're not rational economic man. We are deeply social, adaptable humans. So once we begin to understand the nature of ourselves and the living world of which we're a part, then we can ask a question, how do we create economic systems that enable us to thrive and meet our needs within the means of the living planet? How did you come up with the donut or even think that you could? Because I think that a lot of things stopping a lot of people on this call and and all of us is the ability to kind of shed or to, to have metabolised what is and then imagine what next. And, and you've done a big piece of that puzzle. How? How did, you, how did you do that? What I drew was deeply influenced by pictures that I've seen others have drawn over the decades. So Herman Daly, brilliant economist, He's seen as the father of ecological economics, let's say. He was working at the World Bank in the 1980s, and I think they were doing a report on development and the economy and and the environment. And there was a diagram that said, here's the economy, and resources come in and resources flow out, right? And Herman Daly said, okay, good, you've got a diagram of the economy. Now, draw around it a circle and label it the environment. And the second draft of the report came back, and it had the economy and a circle around it. And he said, good, now label it the environment third draft of the report came back and the diagram had gone. Because just doing that, to bound it within something, that is the most radical act I think you can make in economics because suddenly this circle, this is not showing up as money. This is showing up as parts per million of carbon dioxide. This is showing up as tons of nitrogen. This is showing up as biodiversity species loss. So it doesn't fit in money. We've got to talk in multiple metrics, but suddenly this economy is bounded. And that is too radical an act actually for mainstream economics just talk about supply and demand it was too radical but he drew it and I saw that and I was really struck by it It was just a concept it was a concept on the page 11 years ago earth system scientists said we think there are these boundaries climate ozone biodiversity that is Herman Daly's circle that he said you have to draw around the economy and they've done it They've drawn it and they've, they've quantified it. They've said it, it comes in these nine segments and we can put numbers on it. And suddenly it had gone from a concept that you couldn't do anything with to an actual quantified reality. And, and for me, that was the most powerful moment. I had this visceral reaction in my body when I first saw that. And sitting at my desk in Oxfam, I thought, well, if, if we've got this outer limit, so too there are these inner limits. And that's why I drew in this inside circle and said, just as we can overshoot, we can also fall short on human needs. So 
I drew that picture. Now, how do we all help ourselves to let go of old ideas and be audacious? So once I drew this on a piece of paper, I literally put it in the bottom of the drawer of my desk because I thought, well, I like that, but I'm sure other people will just think that's kind of silly. I kept finding myself in conversations with colleagues where people say, what we need, you know, we're coming out of this financial crisis. We need a new, and I said, oh, well, actually, I've got this picture in the bottom drawer of my desk. And people say, that's, that's good. That's good. You should do something with it. So it's really important to say that because even when we have ideas that actually turn out to be valuable, we can so doubt them. And usually when I introduce the donut to students, I always tell them this story because it's very easy when we're studying to come across a concept and it's got someone's name on it in a year on it. It's kind of a thing, like it just always existed. But all concepts come from people playing with ideas, influenced by other people, built on a foundation of other people's ideas. And there's something very valuable about saying, what happens if I put this idea together with that one and make a mashup of it? What will happen? So I really invite people to keep playing with the donut and we're, we're downscaling it to places and we're opening it up to others. And there's a beautiful Maori reinterpretation of it that turns it inside out because we will only make the best ideas when we keep evolving them and open up to the new possibilities of them. So I would just say to anyone who's come up with an idea and shoved it in the bottom drawer of their desk, hmm, maybe pull it out because maybe if you see something useful there, other people will too. How do they do it? What's, what's the, your kind of, where are you steering people? I know that you, you did the great work of coming up with the new paradigm and the new metaphor. And I know now everyone's coming to you to ask how to apply it. Ever since I first drew the donut and shoved it in the bottom drawer of my desk, but then took it out again and published it at Oxfam, we published it in 2012. It's a global picture. And ever since then, people have said, okay, that's the whole world, but I want to do it in my place. How do I downscale it to here? People started trying to do it for cities and for countries and for towns. And it took the intervention of a brilliant woman, I'm sure many people on this call know, Janine Benyus, who's my hero and one of the leading thinkers in biomimicry and the idea that we should learn from nature as our mentor and our metric and our measure. We put our minds together and we came up with a framework which is now used in this process and is underpinning the framework that we're going to publish on Monday, actually. It's all going to be published on Monday. This is the overriding question that we ask places. Think of wherever you are, whether it's Melbourne or Sydney or wherever you are. How can our city be a home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? And that big question breaks down into four lenses here. So we've got local questions and global questions. What we're combining is local aspiration for thriving people. What does it mean to the people of this place to thrive? People of different cultures and histories of stories and of places are different. So what it means to thrive is going to be different in different places. And then also, what would it mean for your city to thrive within its natural habitat? That's the local ecological question. This is Janine's big contribution. So her point here is, go to the wildland next door. What has nature done here? For 3.8 billion years. How does nature thrive here? How does nature store carbon? And how much does she store on this land? How does she catch storm water and store it? How does she house biodiversity? How does she cool the air from the treetops to the forest floor? These become the ecological metrics of your place. The goal for the city becomes, how can our city sequester as much carbon dioxide as the wildland next door does? How can we store as much water, house as much biodiversity, cool the air? So there you've got this wonderful local aspiration, being thriving people, what it means to those people of that place, in a thriving ecological system. Wonderful local aspiration. And that's often where most cities stop. 
it's got to be set in the context of global responsibility because every city draws in resources and high-income cities and high-income countries, particularly drawing from the world. So who made the clothes we wear? Who picked the coffee beans that we sip in our latte? Who made the mobile phones that enable us to stay really connected with everybody? Where did all the construction materials come from? So that the human supply chains behind all those imported products and sorting all that waste that leaves the city. What are the human conditions there? And what are the ecological conditions? What is the ecological impact of extracting resources, uh, of bringing all this material and then spewing out waste? And Australia, like the Netherlands, like the UK, I'm just saying this, I've seen people popping up online here, so I'm naming places I know we've got folks on the call from, but like all high-income countries, massively overshoots planetary boundaries. And your cities, our cities, overshoot planetary boundaries when it comes to looking at the ecological footprint. So we've got to come back within. So it's local and global. It's social and ecological. Now, what I love about Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam gave itself a new goal. They said, our vision is to be a thriving, regenerative and inclusive city for all residents whilst respecting planetary boundaries. Now, right there in their goal, they recognize that need, as Herman Daly saw, to limit. And for me, when I saw that the city of Amsterdam has, has taken that on, okay, they're now changing the paradigm. They are ready because they've changed the paradigm. Now they're ready to change the policies and practices. So that's what we're doing. Got a lot of traction internationally, right? There was a nice article about it in The Guardian. People found it and boo, 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 it was going everywhere. And then people start sending it to their mayor. Hey, why can't we do this in Bristol or Dublin or Delhi or Sydney? When is it happening in Melbourne? And again, it's that energy of people saying, right, I want this to happen here. Ten days ago, the City Council of Copenhagen passed a motion saying we need to look at what it would mean to bring a donut economy here in terms of finance and economy. The best bit about that for me is I found out about it on Twitter. I didn't have anything to do with it. And it's just this lovely spontaneous. It's happening in Costa Rica, in Colombia. So it brings home one of the really important ways that change happens, which is that people are inspired by people like themselves who are already doing that thing that they thought was impossible. So mayors are inspired by mayors and activists by activists and business leaders by business leaders. And suddenly it gives us permission and possibility to say, and we're going to do it too. So now Amsterdam has to say, how do we bring it down to place? Well, they're going to bring in a circular economy. They're getting rid of all fossil fuel vehicles within 10 years. They need to make some really significant changes. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, but it's, it doesn't go away if you don't face up to it. They're facing up to it and they're giving themselves this new paradigm. So I'm really excited about the adventure that they've committed to go on very publicly and the inspiration it's causing for other places. I, I am really curious about your, the Donut Economics Lab. What's the purpose of the lab? And can you just talk to us a little bit about that? So Donut Economics was published in 2017. I spent two years presenting it, going around, talking what you could do. You could do this. You could in business. You could do this. You could. And then my kids like, mum, you're never here. And I started to think, okay, that's enough talking about it. Who actually wants to do it? And again, this thing of never knocking on a shut door. Where do I keep being reinvited? Like which communities keep wanting to go deeper? And there were five local community groups or communities of purpose and from church groups to Extinction Rebellion to the residents of Cornwall wanting to go in, right? So communities, cities and places, this downscaling that I was just talking about businesses and enterprises. How can we do, can we do business in the donor? What would we have to do to say we were doing business in the donor? How, what would that look like? Teachers writing to me every day on Twitter saying, well, I know it's not in the syllabus, but I know my kids in the classroom deserve to learn about it. So I'm going to teach this. So how do we make lesson plans with and for teachers? And then government policy. I never actually intended to work with governments because I intended just to 
put them aside. Otherwise, I knew I'd write a far too narrow book that was trying to kind of be pleasing and feasible for policymakers. But governments are coming and wanted. So those five communities. So I just thought, you know, there comes a point where enough talking, enough talking. Let's turn down our economics from ideas on a page to transformative action and let's make it visible. So I thought, let's set up Donut Economics Action Lab an online platform where we're going to invite anybody who wants to join, can join, become a member. There's going to be lots of resources that we're working very hard on, videos and explainers and lesson plans and workshop activities and a workshop for businesses of how you can explore the donut. And then we're inviting people to come and co-create and share us what you're doing or what you learned from doing that, how you change it or how you'd adapt it. So it's the biggest experiment, actually, because the donut and the concepts of donut economics, I want them to be open so that change makers can use them and take them into their work and put them into practice. And at the same time, we need to hold integrity of the concept to make sure it doesn't get watered down, particularly in the area of business. There's a risk that some big companies think, oh, that looks cool. And people are, you know, donut sounds like a cool thing. Let's embrace it. Let's make the donut ours and For me, whenever a disruptive idea meets business as usual, something's going to get transformed. And for our point of view, we're really determined it's not us, that business needs to transform if it's going to do the donut. So it's a big experiment and I don't know how it's going to play out because we're trying to share our ideas while retaining their integrity. And how do you balance that openness and integrity? Are there any other challenges that you're really staring down the face of other than what COVID has presented prior to COVID, were you facing much pushback or not really? Because we work in the space of going where the energy is, of course there's pushback and the more that that community builds and the more that some policymakers start bringing it into the world of business or the world of policy, then there's the old thinking that starts to push back against it. And it's like, oh, hang on, hang on, we have to take this thing seriously now. You know, we thought it was a sort of dabbling in the corner. Actually, we now have to deal with it. First tactic, ignore, which is what, say, economics departments basically have done, which is what they did to Herman Daly's diagram. Or you kill. So you squash it, you discredit it, you ridicule it. Uh, That hasn't really happened. So when you call something donut economics, people feel like I'm allowed here and clearly I'm allowed to play because this is clearly ridiculous. And so it's made people incredibly playful. It throws the mainstream economists slightly off guard because you're coming from a different place. So that's part of the way we've responded. But with all the crises that are going on in the world, it's not going very well, is it, the mainstream economic frame? So they like to put the onus on us to say, well, show that it would work. Show that an economy without growth would work. And there is an onus to start figuring out how that works. It's very hard to do it when it doesn't exist. But the question goes right back. Sorry, could you show me how this economy that's based on endless growth does work? Because we're in the hottest years on record. We've got extremes of inequality. This doesn't seem to be working. And so there's a tip. And that's why I'm finding more governments that I never intended to appeal to actually really interested, actually looking. And it often starts at the city level, but you'd be surprised how many political parties across the spectrum are looking for something because it's not working. Politicians will only start recognising that new economy when they see it, when they encounter it, when they knock on doorsteps, when they see these enterprises existing in the community, when they see people cycling, when temporary cycle lanes are created and they're like, wow. So you need to make it visible. Otherwise, that constituency doesn't seem to be there. And there's a huge visibility of the vested interests that don't want to change. But there are people whose lives and whose reputations and whose wealth and power is vested in maintaining the old system and discrediting anything new that's trying to come through. I think their grandchildren's future would be much safer in the other hands. But it's very threatening to people if you're an economics professor and this completely new paradigm comes along. It's very threatening because it's not where your expertise or your authority comes from or a policymaker. 
So we have to make these frames available in ways that actually people aren't threatened by it or see that they can become part of it. Is this economic model a model for those who have or for those who do not have? How does it go about creating opportunity for wealth distribution? take you back I was sitting at my desk in Oxfam and I saw this diagram of nine planetary boundaries and how we need to live in a circle within it and I'm sitting at my desk in Oxfam my colleagues over there in this big open plan office are responding to a food crisis in the Sahel and my colleagues in that direction are campaigning for health and education for all focusing the campaign in India and my colleagues in the UK department are focusing on exploitative labor going on in UK's hidden factories So I thought, hang on, if there are outer limits of resource use, there have to be inner limits, they're human rights. And I drew in this inside circle precisely to represent and focus on the people who are falling short. So first of all, I would say that what the donuts shows, and when we see the red, it shows us people who are falling short, who don't have enough food, who don't have decent health care, don't have access to clean water or toilet, don't have political voice. So it's definitely visually and quantitatively focused on those who don't have so it's one thing to say let's look at those who don't have Damien's question is like what are you going to do about it best question so for me there are two dynamics that we need to bring into place to bring humanity into the donut two big dynamics degenerative linear degenerative design to circular regenerative design right we need to create circular not linear economies we need to restore rather than run down the living world that's the one and the other one we currently have economies that tend to centralize opportunity and financial value in few hands, drawing it into one place, whether it's through profits driven to the hands of shareholders, whether it's through the large companies that now dominate supermarket supply chains or dominate the internet. And what we need to do is turn from this very centralizing designs to distributive designs. And what would it look like to create economies that went from that to that? How do you create distributions? For me, the key is not to Just say, well, look, the economy is unequal and unfair. Let's just tax people because that would be redistributing income, accepting the underlying inequalities. We'll just redistribute income. First of all, we know that that never happens on the scale required because the people who have very high incomes also have quite close connections to politicians, disproportionate power. So we don't want to only redistribute income. For me, you want to go a layer deeper and pre-distribute the sources of wealth creation. What do I mean? First one, the potential of every human being is lies in our health and our education. So public health and education, invest in that. That's one of the most powerful pre-distributive things you can do. Second, think about who owns enterprise. So ownership of enterprise. Are workers just going to be coming in, paid a wage, go home and quite disempowered? Or what about creating employee-owned enterprises or cooperatively-owned enterprises? So redesigning the ownership of enterprise, thinking about who owns the land and who owns public utilities. Does the state own these? Do the commoners own these? Does the market own these? Who owns access to communications and and information? Who owns the ideas? Again, in Donut Economics Action Lab, we're saying, you know what, we're going to put our ideas in the commons. We're not trying to patent them and copyright them and then you have to trademark them and you have to pay us to use them. Let's just jump into a much more distributive form of ideas where we create an ecosystem of sharing, creative commons licensing. So I love thinking about what are the possible pre-distributive designs. Many people promote universal basic income. That is one way of trying to say, let's pre-distribute access to market-based goods. We need to pre-distribute and create a far more distributive economy. There are many ways of doing it. Chris wants to know, to what extent do you think that donut economics needs donut law, both with respect to company law and general regulation of business? 
When I discovered a lawyer called James Thornton, who wrote a brilliant book called Client Earth about taking Earth as your client as if you're a lawyer, and he goes around the world and just sues countries on the basis of their own existing climate legislation and makes them actually implement their climate and ecological legislation. And when I read and learned about his work, I thought, God, I studied economics because I wanted to sort of help change the world. And I thought being an economist would, but actually seeing the power of the law. So seeing the power of regulation. Yes, absolutely. We need regulations that stop climate change and they need to be at multiple levels from the UNFCCC, the climate change negotiations that happen every year, bringing all the way down to the level of a city of Amsterdam that says by 2030, we will have removed all fossil fuel based cars from our city. That is a regulation. Again, it's giving a long, loud legal message about the new paradigm that you're pursuing. Amsterdam says by 2050, we're going to be a 100% circular economy. You get your regulation and now you have to give that teeth and make it come into practice now. You know, the regulations should ensure the rights of people. That's what human rights are. They're a form of legislation that says everybody has a right to meet these essential needs and they should have reparations if those are falling short. So yes, I completely agree. It's not about voluntary action. And it's very difficult, of course, for individual companies to voluntarily shift if the whole of the rest of the market is exploiting that resource. You need regulation to protect resources. So big believer in bringing in the regulations that will then make it happen. How does Kate engage with the current debt debate and the rush Ah. to to stimulate our way out of this global recession. Let's start by remembering that money is a social construct. We invented it. It's a tool. There is nothing set in law about money. It's not immutable. We can change it. What is set in the law is the laws of thermodynamics and the laws of how the climate changes. And so we need to design our economies to be compatible with that. And we need to design finance to be in service to our economies, in service to human and other life. So I think the question of debt is a question around money and its design and its implications. And it goes to the heart of, I ultimately think we need to redesign finance. It's the harder one because now you're just opening up the box of everything. Because what most conversations around economic transformation start on the radio with money, oh, national debt, how are we going to pay for that? or even international debt, the debt of low-income countries, forever indebted through international institutions. I mean, how on earth are they ever supposed to invest enough in health and education to redistribute the sources of wealth and earn that money? I would recommend, especially since most people here in Australia, which is a country that has a sovereign currency, so is in charge of its own currency, and the government has its own bank. It's not like a household. We're not borrowing from others and having to balance our own books. The government has its own bank. I really recommend a new book that's just out by Stephanie Kelton called The Deficit Myth. She explains what people call modern monetary theory. It's actually old monetary theory that got eroded by a kind of monetarism of you've got to balance the books and have balanced budgets. The idea is that we can afford to pay for whatever it is we can do. So long as an economy is not in full employment, so long as there's capacity, the government can create money in order to spend activity into action. And the real question is, what is it your you know, recovery or what is it you are rebooting? What is it you are lifting? Are you just putting money into getting airplanes off the ground again? Thank goodness we're all flying again, because then you're just rebooting the climate crisis. Or are we transitioning and actually investing in so-called green jobs? We need insulation, we need solar panels. So how do you redirect the economy in this moment, this crisis that nobody wanted and nobody asked for, but it's making the transformation we already knew we needed. So how do you steer it? And yes, if we go into debt now, it's like an investment in the future. We know what needs to happen. We know the social and planetary limits. What is missing is behaviour change. In your view, Kate, what is the best angle for mass behaviour change? 
disruptive events, right? How do you get away from the business as usual we have towards the transformative future we want? How do you harness disruptive events? COVID is one hell of a disruptive event. That's really obvious. And how do you harness this, for example, as a moment around behavior change? So we've seen mayors the world over realize that this is the moment to do what they thought they could only do over 10 years, to do it now which is to take major streets in the city and just turn it into one lane for taxis and, and buses and two lanes for cycles and scooters. And and bang, you get behavior change. There was behavior that was waiting to emerge. There's behavior that's wanted to happen, but couldn't happen because it's too dangerous in that city. Again, it's making the new possible visible. So there's a lot of behavior change that already wants to happen. But then, of course, some of our behaviors are linked to our beliefs. When people start using a a reusable bag or a, a reusable cup instead of a plastic cup, if they start with that behavior, they can start thinking, oh, I, yeah, I'm one of these people now. And then it can trigger more behavior. They're like, I like, I like being this. So changing our behavior can change our beliefs, but also sometimes those beliefs change our behaviors. And I think some of it goes back to deep understanding of how we're deeply interconnected with the life support systems of the planet. Kids learn about the body and they don't learn about the planetary body. And if we don't understand why we need a stable climate, mm-hmm. it's a kind of irritating thing you see in the papers. And I just want to fly off on holidays. If we don't understand the deep interconnections, we won't be motivated to change the paradigms we live by. The best place of behavior change is seeing somebody you respect, care about your neighbor, somebody a bit like me who's doing that thing that I was thought was impossible and they're already doing it. They got rid of their car. They're just using a, a sharing scheme, really? Huh, maybe. So it's the leadership of our neighbours, and which means it's, of course, the leadership of each one of us to start making that happen. Do you think that letting go of or limiting personal wealth is part of this? If we owned everything together, because in the end, everything relies on the commons, and it is, in essence, all of ours equally. So the 20th century, late 20th century economy was welcome to economics, here's the market puts that at the center of our vision. And the market is the space of private property. So that's a precondition for enabling markets is that you need to be a property which you are then legally allowed to trade. On the other side of the story is the state. So should all property sit in the, in the hands of the state? And then some people looked at sort of 20th century communism, socialism, said, oh, I don't like the way that's going. That doesn't work. So we end up with this dichotomy of the market and the state. And as you just mentioned, there's also the commons where people come together and co-create goods and services that they value. Now, how ownership sits between these, there are so many possible designs. I want to just give one example. In many cities around the world, housing is just becoming really unaffordable because people have second homes or international investors are investing in that city or because wealthy people are seeking, where's the best rate of return on my money? Oh, it's in property. So I'll buy property because then I get my five, my 7%. The irony that property is also called a house or a home, or it's a fundamental human right to have a house. So you've got people desperate for the right to live somewhere, it's decent, competing in a market with people who are looking for the best return on their excessive capital. That's the anomaly of the housing market. And many cities are becoming totally unaffordable for key workers, for people who grew up there and can't afford a home. They become renters for their life. The city of Vienna is one example of a city that owns a lot of the public housing. They never sold it off. And so over 60% of people in the city of Vienna live in housing that's either owned by the city or by cooperatives. And it's just completely normal. It's affordable. It's great quality housing. It's pretty equitable. So it shows that there are really different designs of ownership. Who owns a place really enables us to have more distributive rents and accessibility. I think it's a much more equitable city with public luxury of shared parks and shared common spaces rather than everybody retreating to their own private spaces. So many, many ways of reorganizing that. 
Let's How do we make the market value things in line with our values? The first cut answer that would be, well, you have to price everything because markets only respond to prices, right? That's the kind of typical economics answers. We need to put a price on carbon and we need to put a price on it. And it assumes that markets are rational and follow maximizing of price. But there are many things that don't have prices. You know, you can put a price on copper or on oil, but it's very difficult to put a price on biodiversity loss. It's very difficult actually to put the right price on carbon or on water use. So I'm not somebody who believes that we're going to sort this by having everything captured in prices and letting the market go. So markets have entities, there are organizations that operate in markets and let's call them companies. And what really matters is the design of the company. So every company needs to align these five design traits. And I invite you, any company you're part of or you know, it's even an organization, right? You need to think about one, what is our purpose? Let's start here with the purpose, the paradigm, what's driving us. How are we networked? Who are our customers? Who are our suppliers? Who are our allies? Who's in our ecosystem? And do they share our values? Or are they pulling us back into old values? And how do we change the networks we move in? How do we govern ourselves? Who has voice in decision making? What are the rules and the practices we operate by? What are the metrics we judge our success by? And what are the incentives we give to our staff? Are those incentives aligned with our purpose? Or actually, are they cutting against it? And now we get down to the deeper stuff. I call this corporate psychotherapy. And as in any psychotherapy, the, the most powerful stuff lies deeper. So how are we owned? How is this enterprise owned? Because whether it's owned by family or venture capital or shareholders or the state or its own employees or its customers, all of these ownership designs are going to have profoundly different implications for the quality and the demands of the finance that come to it. And whether that finance is saying, well, obviously I'm investing in you because I want the highest and fastest returns. And if you don't deliver that amount, or the finance says, well, clearly I'm investing in you because I share your purpose. That's why I'm here. And I'm investing in the long social and ecological transformations that you're aiming to bring about through the structure of an enterprise. You're using it as an organizational form because it's a great vehicle for bringing about those changes. You're not here in order to make money. You're here in order to bring about change in the world through a vehicle that will make money. You need to turn a profit. Otherwise, you can't open the doors next week, next month, next year. But you're not here to drive endless profit. Now, some enterprises, most 20th century enterprises, I'd say start here. Actually, our purpose is finance. And if you're a shareholder-owned company, then UK and US, and I, I don't know enough about Australian law, will tell you, you have a fiduciary duty to maximize your returns to shareholders. Basically, you're a finance-driven company. And your obligation is to maximize this. And therefore, you design all of this in line with doing that. And it's a legal duty. And you get this finance-driven enterprise. There are completely other kinds of enterprises that also operate in markets that start here. We are a, a social enterprise, we are a purpose-driven enterprise, or we might even just be a family firm, but we're driven by purpose. And yes, we need to make a profit, but that's not why we're here. So I think it's not just markets. Well, the point I'm trying to make here is we need to go inside and what are the forms that operate within markets? Because some of them are utterly out to maximize finance and therefore will exploit the living world and exploit people in order to get it. And others are absolutely here with a purpose using an enterprise form as a vehicle. So let's move towards those kinds of enterprises and let's bring in legislation that requires them, that they govern themselves that way. And I would like to see a transformation of finance. So that question lead towards the financial institutions. Finance is way too big. It's become its own sector. Most money from banks gets reinvested in finance because they're just there to make the return. And so they're making the return within their own spinning wheels it needs to massively shrink and be redesigned so it's in service to the real economy in service to life
well, how does life work? So it drives us back to understanding the living systems of which we're part. You have to understand life cycles, life's dynamics, life's laws. There are laws. And then we design finance to be in service to that. And that is our transformation. And the problem with capitalism, the design we have at the moment, is that people think we're born into a world in which if you, if you think if you put some money away in a bank or into a company, that you should get 3 5 10% every year. Like nothing else works like that. Nature rots, nature deteriorates, things break down. But capital is designed with the absolute opposite dynamic, which is the expectation of endless accumulation. And so it's not compatible with the living systems on earth. And so I think there's a really fundamental redesign of money. What if money was designed that it didn't hold value, it actually deteriorates like life? And that the best thing an investor could do was say, if you invest your money with me, I will give you the same amount back in 10 years. I will regenerate the world and I will be able to bring off a harvest that gives you the same amount back. That's an amazing thing to do. Rather than saying, I'll give you more, 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 because we've got the expectations of capital diverging from the realities of the planet. How have you developed metrics to understand or measure the ecological overshoot? On the global donor, the metrics come from the earth system scientists who wrote about planetary boundaries. If you really want that, it's a paper by Will Stefan, an Aussie. He's in Canberra, brilliant climate scientist. And it's a paper on planetary boundaries. And they go through every single one of the planetary boundaries and say how they quantify it. So, for example, I'll give one example. On climate change, this ecological ceiling is set at 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as a concentration. But today we are over 415 parts per million. So they use the best science to say, what do we think is the most pressure you can put on planet Earth? In the same way, you could say, how long can a human body go without food before we die or without water or without oxygen? So they attempted to quantify that. When we bring it down to the scale of a city, then we bring in questions of historic responsibility. So Amsterdam, we count for all the carbon, not just that's emitted in the city, but all the carbon that's embedded in the products that are imported to the city. It's tricky stuff to do. I'll just say one thing on this, which is we are at the very beginning of creating the metrics that enable us to measure Earth in her own capacities and measure her own, on her own terms. And I think I see ourselves at the very beginning of a 21st century journey on that. And even in a decade's time, we'll look back at the metrics we're using now to do this and they'll look really crude and they will have been crude, but we won't get there unless we start. Can we add culture, language and connection to country to the inner circle or are there reasons why you shouldn't? When, when I saw these planetary boundaries and I wanted to fill in the inside, and I thought, well, what is a credible source for filling in the inside? Who has the right to say what these should be? And the Sustainable Development Goals, negotiated by the world's countries, is a pretty credible international source. In fact, it was a very powerful one because I was then invited to present the donor at the United Nations General Assembly. And it was really powerful to be able to say, well, this is the latest from Earth System Science. And these are yours. These come from you, the world's government. So you chose these, not me or Oxfam or anybody at you doesn't mean they got it right. doesn't mean they talked about everything that matters. So, for example, we've got gender equality because there's been a lot of very important work on gender inequalities through the UN system, but we don't have explicitly racial inequality. We can talk about it through social equity, but it's not explicitly there. And we don't have culture and we don't have community. These are derived from human rights, which actually are quite individually specified. 
So when we downscaled to the city, when we arrived at Amsterdam, we said, well, now the local goals, they don't have to come from the UN, they come from the city. And guess what? Right in comes racial equality, community and culture. So mm. I love that question. Yes, we are embodying it in at the level of places that say, of course, this is a crucial to how we thrive. So we're adapting it. And luckily, I'm really glad it's come in now. I hope you took notes during this one. Thank you to Kate and Barry for the conversation. Just recently, one of the legends on our team, Kai Lofgren, along with his crew at Regen Melbourne, launched a localised take on Kate's work following a series of participatory workshops. The Melbourne Donut is being used to chart a more regenerative future for our city. And you can learn more about that at regen.melbourne. This episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast was produced on the lands of the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nations. I acknowledge their traditional owners and elders past and present. Shout out to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode. And you can learn more about Kate's work and other frameworks for economic success over at the Small Giants Academy website, smallgiants.com.au. Thanks for your company, and I'll see you next time on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. Have you aligned your bank with your values? Your everyday choices make an impact, and where your bank does too. Search Bank Australia to join the change.